I am uh, really excited. We are shifting gears this week. If you are uh, just joining us this week, you picked a perfect first week uh, to come. Uh, welcome. We are excited that you are here. Uh, this is a good week because we are launching into a conversation about vision. And uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be having a conversation about vision. And this series is actually called Visioneering, uh, which is a play on the words vision and engineering and creating that. Um, that title, uh, I don't own. Uh, a guy named Andy Stanley came up with that, and, uh, and I networked with him uh, to use that. <laughs> and so I love that frame and that language. There's a book uh, called Visioneering, and some, uh, some ideas come from there from this series, but I am so excited about what it looks like as we begin to dive into this conversation about vision. I was thinking about a few years back, do you guys remember um, when the movie Avatar came out? You guys uh, remember that? I didn't actually go see it uh, in theaters. I think I, I saw it like way, way after everyone, uh, everyone else. And I watched it like with commercials and it was the worst because it was so long. I should have watched it and experienced it a better way because uh, what happened when that movie came out is the news, it was really interesting to watch. They were having conversations about people because of the, the visuals of that movie, that it was in 3D and it was this beautiful other uh, uh, environment and it was gorgeous, that people were actually leaving the theater and experiencing depression because the visual stimuli that they experienced in the 3D environment of this movie was so beautiful that it was a, uh, it was a letdown to go back into the real world. And I thought, what a crazy picture that was. And it was all over the news at the time. And I remembered that as I was thinking about this series and the power of a clear vision, that when you have a clear vision, it ignites something in you. It ignites a, a hope and expectation of what is to come. And when they came out of the movie theater and they took off the 3D glasses and they were just faced with the regular world, folks were actually experiencing depression because they had lost the clarity in the picture of that vision. That's how powerful a vision can be. You know, advertisers have known that a powerful, clear vision for a long time will move people to action. It will cause you to make a decision on a product if you have caught the vision for that product, right? I'm gonna give you a couple of, uh, of vision statements and you tell me what product or what uh, uh, company I am thinking about, okay? When you hear the words, I'm loving it. McDonald's, right? Some of you are salivating right now and you're like, oh, I would love to have gone to McDonald's before I came to church, but we were running late. I don't know, right? How about this one? Finger licking good. KFC, right? So there was a vision that got communicated and advertisers translated that to your brain. And now you ignite with that vision to that idea. How about this? Eat fresh. Yeah, right, a couple of you. Less of you go to Subway than McDonald's and KFC, apparently. I'm just saying, it's an observation. How about this one? Have a break, have a kick. Yeah, you guys did better on that one, and I thought, I thought that one would be harder. I guess it's getting close to a time when you guys have Kit Kats in the house. We're hitting October deep here. This is the hardest one, I think. Beans means... Yeah, see, I didn't know this one either. Heinz. Yeah, beans means Heinz. I don't know, I didn't make it up. I just pulled it from the list and I was like, ooh, that's a hard one. I don't know that one. So whatever generation got beans means Heinz is not in the room. This one I think you got, taste the rainbow. Yes, that is a good one. All right, this one is my generation for sure. Snap, crackle, pop. All right, last one. 
<laughs> Did someone say Rice Krispie treats? <laughs> that went farther. <laughs> All right, last one. Choosy moms, choose. Yeah. All right. So you know that the power of a good vision can stick with you. It can get ingrained into your culture. And advertisers have known this for a long time. Movie producers have known this for a long time. But they don't have the market on vision. God has known for a long time that when we have vision, we will move in the direction of that vision. You know, I can think of some scary times when I didn't have vision. I think I've shared the story before about trying to swim across a lake to impress some girls at age 15. In the middle of the night, it's after midnight, and there's a group of us doing what dumb teenagers do, hopping fences and going into property that's not their property, right? Some of you know some people who do that in this community. They were here last night. <laughs> I think President Farmer scared them away, and then I put the fire out up there that they had left, which was amazing. So we get a little, some fun things like that. But I was one of those teenagers once, so I can only get but so mad. And uh, I was hopping a fence, and I had a, we had a group of girls with us, and we went to this lake, and we were trying to show off and do what boys do when they want to impress girls, which is risk their life. <laughs> and somewhere, at some point, someone said, I could swim across this lake, to which every other guy said, well, I could swim across this lake. And somehow we stripped down, jumped in the lake, and started swimming. Now, it's the middle of the night. We're at a lake. There's no light sources and we have honestly no real idea of how far this lake is at this time of night. We just know, well, I personally know, I'm getting across this lake and I ain't gonna be last. And so I take off like a rocket and I'm swimming, 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 swimming. I'm not like a strong swimmer, I'm not a weak swimmer, but I have a strong pride and a big ego. And there's girls. Did I mention there were girls there? And so I'm swimming, <laughs> trying to get across this lake. And I swim probably far enough to get halfway out. And suddenly I realize, hey, man, I'm tired. How much further do I have to go? I don't know if you've ever, in the middle of the night, in complete and utter darkness, recognized that you were in the middle of a lake and exhausted. But there's some emotions that go through your body. And sometimes those emotions translate to your voice. And all of the bass that I had experienced in the three years previous went out of my voice. And suddenly it was like, hey, you guys, is anybody out there? And I'm breathing heavy. Now, I had managed to get ahead of these guys because, you know, pride. But sooner or later, I hear a little, some splashing. And one of my friends catches up to me. And I'm like, I'm like, his nickname was Rambus because he was garbage at basketball. If you know the Lakers, he was Rambus. I'm like, Rambus, where are we going? He's like, relax. I'm like, I am relaxed. That's my I'm not relaxed voice. And he goes, look. And across the lake, there was a beach. And in the back of the beach, in the corner of the beach, there was a restroom. And there was a little red light above the restroom. And in my panic, I couldn't see it. But when someone calmed down, and calmed me down and said, that's your goal, to swim towards that light. The power of vision took an exhausted person and said, now I know where I can go to. And it gave me strength and it gave me hope and it gave me strategy. I started to pace myself. Suddenly I was back floating for a little while and then turning around and swimming and then back floating for a little while. It gave me strategy. But when there was no vision, there was no hope. 
There was fear. There was panic. There was stress. A simple amount of vision changes everything. We all struggle when we don't have vision. Think about some of the projects that you've been asked to be a part of that you don't have a clear picture of where this project's going. Someone says, hey, can you come over here and help me with this project in my house? And you're like, okay, sure, I'll help. And you show up and you go, what do you want to do? And they go, I don't know. We just kind of want, want to change all this. Wait, what? There's no vision. Or you've been asked to help someone move. This is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, right? Don't make eye contact with them if they're in the room because you know who you're thinking about right now. Yeah, I'll come help you move, and you have a vision. I'm going to move heavy things for a couple of hours. You're going to give me pizza, and we'll high-five, and then congratulations on your move. That's my vision. I've shown up at houses where their vision was, start wrapping this stuff up and put it in boxes for me. That's not my move. I'm not any good at that for you. I don't have technical proficiency, but I can move heavy things for a couple of hours. So you've been in an environment where no vision has led to tension, has led to stress, has led to pain, has led to confusion, has hurt relationship. You've had to struggle with vision when you bought that piece of furniture that you're supposed to put together. And you pulled out the thing and you're like, these instructions are not in English. I don't speak Dutch. Ikea, help me. And you didn't have vision. You didn't know where it was supposed to go and what was supposed to go with what. There's nothing worse than when you're first starting the project and you can't find the first piece. And they're like, get part A1. And you're like, none of these are A1. There's no vision. You're frustrated. A clear path makes all the difference. Those are funny, but what about when it gets a little bit, the stakes are higher? What about vision for raising your kids? Moms and dads. Do you have a vision for raising your kids? Do you have a plan, a hope, a dream, a direction that you want? This experience that you have, these limited number of years that you're with them, where you want this to go? I did youth ministry for 15 plus years. I can tell you there's a difference in a kid whose family has vision for their life. I'm not talking about controlling the direction and outcome of everything that they do. I'm talking about a vision of who they can be and what our goals for our family are and what they can achieve. There's a power when there's vision. I've seen some kids with no vision. What about in your career, your marriage? Do you have vision? Do you have vision? Do you have a vision for where you want your marriage to go? Do you have vision for how you want it to go, where you want to end up? Do you have vision for your career and where you want to end and how you want to? What about those of you that are getting close to retirement? Do you have vision for what your life's going to look like after retirement? Not just a plan, but vision, hope. Where is this thing going to go? What do I want to do? It's very difficult to do any of these things without vision. Again, advertisers have known forever that they can move us all over the map if they could just put vision into our life. But God has certainly known that much longer. So for the foreseeable future, the next several weeks, we are going to talk about this idea of developing and cultivating a personal vision. I'm going to talk with you about the vision and the direction of our church and where things are going in this next season, how we got there. We're going to walk through this by talking about the life of a, a guy in the Bible who's got an incredible story. His name is Nehemiah. And uh, so we're going to walk through uh, the first several chapters of Nehemiah together. And you could jump ahead to me to Nehemiah 1 if you want. 
But God has recognized that vision is a critical part of our design. He's designed us to function with vision. From the very beginning, he gave us a job and a purpose. He put us in the garden. He's like, you're going to rest and you're going to work. You're going to cultivate. You're going to rule. You're going you're gonna to have a purpose. You're going to rest. You're going to have relationship. These are all part of your design. I didn't leave you aimlessly in this garden wandering around. I created you with vision. So we need vision in our lives. Without it, we never accomplish any of the things God's called us to do. That's why Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 29, 18. I love the King James version of this because it says, where there's no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. But I love this picture. Where there's no vision, the people what? Perish. They just die. They just don't make it. They just waste away. They fail to accomplish the things they were designed to accomplish. The, uh, the NIRV says it this way, and it's kind of like a paraphrase, but it says, where there's no message from God, the people don't control themselves. Woo! Some versions say cast off restraint. When there's no message from God, the people don't control themselves. And you know this is true, you've seen this. I was a young youth pastor probably 24, 23 years old, and I had a student in my group, and uh, I'll give her a different name because I forget these things are online. We'll call her Susan. And Susan, she uh, was a homeschool kid. She was sweet as could be. She would come to the church and help out. She would cut all the flyers out, and she would put together the calendars for youth events. She was one of the sweetest girls. She used to come all the time and just serve at the church. She was great to have around. She lit up the room. She was full of energy. She had charisma and leadership skills. She was all of the things that, uh, that just light up a room when you're a 13, 14-year-old girl and, and committed and loving Jesus and serving. And then something happened in her family and there was a big rift and a blow up and her parents split up and it was ugly and it was uh, harsh and there was custody fights and arguments and it was just an explosion and something changed in Susan. See, there was a vision that she had of where her life was going to go. And when she had that vision, she had purpose and she had energy and she had excitement and she had joy and she had meaning and something, an exterior thing ripped that vision out of her life and she shifted from a place of having vision to a place where there seemed to be no reason to control herself. And Susan, one of the sweetest girls I've ever worked with on, on any level, began to walk down a very dark path. Drugs and addiction became part of her life. She had the charisma to get into any social group that she wanted to get into, but she sought after groups where she knew there was danger and risk because she was desperate for excitement and meaning that she couldn't find anywhere else. And when you don't have vision and you don't have hope, then you'll substitute that. You'll medicate that. You'll do anything to numb that. You'll, you'll chase any instant short-term gratification to neutralize the emptiness that is there because there's no longer vision and there's no longer hope. And I watched Susan, who I loved and, and had a heart for, run away from all of the things that she knew to be true when she had vision and go to a very dark place. She's the first person I ever visited in rehab. It's before I'd even gone and visited my family members there. And I remember sitting in, in forced rehab. She was in a forced rehab environment. She's like 16 years old. And, and, and for a couple years, she's just been running 
abusing her own soul and her own body and her own destiny. And, I, and I'm sitting there with her and I'm just trying to let her know that someone loves her for who she is and not what she does for them. And she pulls her legs up and, and kind of into a fetalish position and she looks at me with a kind of Cheshire cat's grill. She goes, what are you doing here? I know how to get everything I want. You can't help me. And there's no message from God that people just don't control themselves. They just don't control themselves. This is the power and importance of vision. If you don't have it, you will derail your life. If you don't have it, you will search and chase for things that will give you instant gratification but not take you into your destiny. That's why the series is called Visionary, and we want to talk for the next several weeks about engineering and building vision into your life. So today, we're just going to scratch the surface. We can't solve it in a week, so you're going to have to follow along for a couple of weeks if you want to go on the journey, or make sure you catch the podcast or the repeat. Um, And so uh, that's important to do, but let's start by just defining visioneering. Visioneering is a clear vision with the courage to follow through. I have a clear vision. I know exactly where I'm supposed to go. And I have the courage to walk it out, the impotence to walk it out. I recognize something that must be, or I see something that should be, and I recognize there's some things I must do. What does vision do for us? Vision, it motivates and it directs. It gives us motivation. It's what lights a fire under us to take a step, and then it tells us, go this direction. Don't just take a step, but take a step in this direction. Why don't I quit? I have a vision for my kids, so I can't quit because I recognize the stakes. I'm motivated, and I have to take a step. If you have a vision for your marriage, you can't quit. You have have to take a step. You're motivated. You want to go there. If you have a vision for your career, you can't quit on it. You have to take a step. You must keep going there. Vision is what keeps me from quitting. Vision assigns value. You see, vision's the difference between a good idea and a God idea. There's lots of good ideas. Not all of them are vision. And for the next several weeks, we're gonna break that apart a little bit. How do we know the difference between a good idea and a God idea? I had a good idea. Is it vision? Well, maybe. Could be. How do we know? It moves from good idea to God idea as it becomes vision. So let's start the conversation with Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, you can jump to Nehemiah. I'm going to give you a little of the background as you're working your way there. Nehemiah's name actually means the Lord has comforted, which is uh, pretty awesome because his story is about the Lord comforting him, although he partners in such an incredible way. The book of Nehemiah is the last historical book of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament has a series of books that are just the history of the Jewish people. And Nehemiah is the last historical book. It's not the last uh, 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 
in order, but it's the last chronologically, historically. And so Esther actually happens afterwards, um, and it shows up afterwards in your Bible, but Esther actually happens during Nehemiah, and Nehemiah actually happens during Ezra. And so uh, all of those stories are all simultaneously happening. So Esther happens like between Ezra six and seven. Ezra is happening in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were just one book for a long time. And eventually they were split apart around 1600 AD so that we could just get our Bibles put together uh, in a way that made a little more sense for us. That's really what happened there. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are happening simultaneously. Ezra uh, and Nehemiah are happening and Esther happens right in the middle of that. But Nehemiah is also happening at the same time as Malachi. Malachi is one of his contemporaries. And so he would know Malachi who writes the last book of the Old Testament, the final prophet. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah is an interesting character because Ezra is a priest. He's a spiritual leader of the people and he leads people back into relationship with God. And Malachi, his other contemporary, is a prophet. And he calls people back to relationship with God and to right uh, order of worship with God. But Nehemiah is an admin. Come on, where's my admins in the house? Wondering, where am I in the scriptures? Nehemiah is an admin. He is not a prophet, he is not a priest. He's just someone who's willing to use the gift that he has for the kingdom of God. And so I love the story of Nehemiah because no matter what your gift is, God will use it if you give it to him. And your gift can be admin and it might be the most important gift in the kingdom if you make it available to God and you have some vision. Come on. So Nehemiah's timeline... So you kind of know what's happening in the, in the story, right? The Babylonians invaded. They took over Judah and Israel. They conquered them, and they, all the people were exiled. And that's when Daniel happens, right? They've been, they've been kind of conquered by the Babylonians. All the greatest uh, and, uh, and best-looking leaders were all taken over to the land of Babylon. Daniel grows up in that environment. But Babylonia, Babylonia, the Babylonians, they didn't survive very long because in came Persia. And Persia dominated the Far East in this timeline, right? And Persia, if you, uh, if you, you shouldn't have saw it, but if you saw the movie 300, Xerxes, Persia, right? I am Sparta, that's Persia. So they dominate the Far East at that time. And that's what's going on in the time of Esther and of Ezra. They've dominated. Now, when Persia comes in and wipes out Babylon, they find this group, these Jewish remnant, and they're displaced. They're living in Babylon, but they want to live in Israel. And they want to live in Jerusalem. And the Persians, they're like, we've conquered this area. We've conquered this area. We've conquered you. I don't care if you live in this area or this area, as long as you stay conquered. And so the Jewish remnant, who's now been displaced in Babylon in Daniel's time, after about 70 years of being displaced, have permission by the Persians because they own both sides. That's no different to them. You want to go back to this town? I don't care what town you're in. You're just paying taxes and we rule you. And so this remnant of Jews leave. And Ezra's story is this story of taking two uh, journeys to back to Jerusalem and, and reestablishing their cultural center of Jerusalem. And so while that happens, many of these um, Jewish remnant remain in this capital area of Persia. They've elevated and become uh, successful or significant. They have positions of cultural influence. Not everyone goes back home. And Nehemiah is one of the guys who doesn't go back home. Part of why he doesn't go back home is he has a really good job. 
And his job is cupbearer to the king. Now, it'd be easy to think of cupbearer as a crummy job because technically you are a butler, you're serving the king, and your primary role is to drink the wine before the king drinks the wine to make sure it's not poisoned. And if it is poisoned, that's not the king's problem. That's your problem. And so it isn't like the kind of job that most of us would ascribe to. However, it is a critically important job at this juncture. Why? Because this individual has regular contact with the king. It's someone, I mean, I'm just historically, they've got to be good looking. They have to fit in the king's court. They have to be well presented, well, uh, uh, well spoken. They have, to be edu- they have to be expected to be able to hold a conversation with the king. And these guys, these Persians, they worship the king like a deity. So to be able to be in his presence regularly and have conversation with him is a really big deal. So though Nehemiah has kind of a bummer job, he has an incredibly valuable position and positional authority. He raised to that place, we can see, because he's got tremendous admin skills, tremendous leadership skills. He is a tremendous leader, and this is one of the highest positions you could possibly raise to while you're conquered. (laughs) because he's conquered at the same time. And so here's Nehemiah. He's in this incredible position of access to the king. It's been maybe 25 years-ish, 20, 25 years since the remnant returned to Jerusalem. And he is awaiting kind of word from some of his family who went there to come back and visit him and just tell him, hey, how's life going back in the homeland? right? How's life going back there? How, how is life? What's, tell me what's happening in our home city. Tell me what's going on. And this is kind of the cultural context, the window. This is how we meet Nehemiah. He's well-dressed. He's well-educated. He's a sharp dude. He's a high admin. He could put things together. He has a position of great authority. He stands next to the king who is literally treated and worshiped like a god by his people. And he tastes the food and says, yeah, this is good. I didn't die. And, And that's his role. But he's Jewish and he cares about his homeland and he cares about his God. But he recognizes he has an assignment right now that he's doing. And at this juncture, Nehemiah is introduced to a problem. And here's the problem. I'm in Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali. Now that's important because there are several Nehemiahs that pop up in the Old Testament. And this is just determining who this guy is. He's not just a a type. It's not just the Lord encourages. He's He's a human, a person who lived. He had a dad. He had a mama. He was around. He's the son of Hakali. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. We could get into where that is. It's December. It's winter. The citadel of Susa would have been the winter palace of the king. But here's what's significant about this. It's just someday. It's just someday. Just like today is October 14th, 2018. It's just someday. And, and here's what I want you to catch about that. Vision can happen at any time. It can get ignited at any point. It can get ignited at any moment. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. doesn't matter what you're working on. doesn't matter what is going on separately than that. If you're just happily doing your job, hoping that it doesn't kill you. Come on, Nehemiah. Maybe some of you can relate. 
And out of nowhere, on just some day, here comes vision. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. Moses, he's been on the run for years, what, 40 years, just tending sheep. He's just doing his normal job. He's tending the sheep, and all of a sudden, it's like a Tuesday at noon, and a bush is on fire. He wasn't out there going, God, give me a vision. I need a word from you. He was just doing his job. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing, and poof, here comes a burning bush. Can God interrupt your plans that way with vision? David, he's out tending the sheep, playing his harp, whatever you artsy people do when no one's watching, <laughs> writing songs that eventually are going to become the Psalms. Come on now. Writing poetry, dreaming, daydreaming. Sheep are just wandering around. He's out there doing his job. His older brothers are all home. He's a younger brother. I got any younger brothers in the room? Get stuck with the crummiest job, right? Guess who's taking the trash out? Younger brother. Guess who's doing the toilet when we clean the house? Younger brother, right? Who's getting all the crummy jobs? Younger brother. That's what's going on with David. It's just a normal day. He's younger brothering it. And here comes the prophet, and he's like, I need one of these boys to be king. And he walks past all the seven older brothers. He's like, none of these guys. Isn't there anyone else? And they're like, yeah, the, the, the scrub's out in the yard, you know, playing his leer or whatever he does out there when he's supposed to be watching the sheep. He's like, bring the boy in. It's just another day. Oil, and you're going to be king. Okay. We've only ever had one king. I don't know how I'm supposed to be king because he's not old. It's just another day of fishing, and Peter and James and John are skunked. Ever gone fishing and got skunked? Some of you are like, no way. I can't relate. I can relate. He's just fishing, and they got skunked. They didn't catch any fish. Skunked means they didn't catch any fish. Not they got sprayed with a skunk. I'm sorry. Some of you are looking at me like, what did they got skunked? They had skunks in Israel? I don't know. I didn't see any. But they didn't catch any fish. They're just having a bad day fishing, which is better than a good day in most other jobs, right, guys? And so they're mending their nets because their nets are their livelihood. And they're putting their nets on, cleaning it up because they fish with nets. They don't have dynamite. <laughs> and here comes this guy, and he's like, hey, why don't you guys follow me and stop fishing for fish, and we'll start fishing for men. And it's Jesus. It's just another work day. It wasn't even the weekend. They were working. And they weren't working. It wasn't even going that well. And it's just sometimes another day. And I think the power of this whole opening sentiment is that Nehemiah wants us to understand, hey, man, it was just like a day. It was winter. I was doing my job. We were at the Winter Palace. I was doing my chores. I was, and he's administrative, so he's clear. It was this day, this month, this week. This is what I was doing. He's got a calendar of his events. He's sharp. And then we realize, I've used this expression before, but it's so powerful that sometimes big doors, they swing on small hinges. And a very simple thing is happening today. He's getting not really mail. He's getting a message. Sometimes you just rip open the mail and your whole life changes. Sometimes you, if you rip and open mail today, that's weird. But if you click on an email, maybe it's a clicking on an email, you open a messenger, you check your phone. I'm not sure. But he's ripping open mail. A message comes. Verse 2, Hananiah, or Hanani. Woo. I should have practiced that. What do you guys see, Hanani? All right, Hanani, <laughs> one of my brothers. And we believe this is probably a biological brother. I mean, it would have just been a brother if he was kind of of the same tribe. Came from Judah. 
with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. His brother shows up and you gotta remember his, that not everyone went home. This is news of home. And he says, oh, my brother showed up and he came with some other men and it was good to see them. And I said, hey, tell me what it's like back home. I got this important job. I can't just go on vacation like all y'all went on vacation. You're gonna have to tell me what you saw when you were there. Now, this is an interesting thing because he certainly cares about them. Even though they're hundreds of miles away, even though they're not right in front of them and they're not, he's not checking their Instagram to see how things are going. Sometimes things that aren't right in our face are still really big in our heart. It's not right in your face, but it's still big in your heart. And when you see someone, you go, oh, mm, that's big in my heart. Tell me what's going on. I have hope for that. I need to know what's happening in my home city and in the kingdom of Judah. And then his brother tells him in verse three, they said to me, those who survived the exile, so the people who were shipped off and then went back, they survived it. They're back in the province and they're in great, trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now this is fascinating because it wouldn't be surprising, it shouldn't be surprising to Nehemiah that the walls are broken down. The city was conquered like a hundred years ago, wiped out his whole life. He would have been told your hometown is conquered. He likely has never been there but he lives in a position of authority and power, close to power and resource. And he hears that the people who went back to his home are there, but they're in a position of disgrace. It is a big deal to be in an unguarded city. You are at the mercy of anyone who wants to come in and take from you and steal from you. And they were not liked and they were not welcome. They'd been gone for a hundred years. Other folks had begun to claim and take those resources. And so they go back into their home and the city's not erected anymore. The walls aren't erected and the gates have been burned down with fire. And it's pretty funny because this wouldn't have been new news to Nehemiah, but it does affect him. It does affect him. The temple hadn't been recompleted and there was work going on there. And so Nehemiah, who's not a prophet, who's not a priest, but he hears about a problem. And he says, there's a thing that isn't right in the world. Something's broken. Something's not working the way that it should work. Verse four, look at his reaction. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He hears about a problem and it moves him in his core. Vision starts on the inside, guys. It starts on the inside. It's a reaction to a problem, to seeing that things aren't the way they should be. That's not the way it should be, God. I see this situation and I am moved in my core. And it says he sat down and he wept. And he didn't weep for five minutes and pull himself together. It says days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We're gonna see it's a lot of days. It's gonna be months before he's, before he's done. But vision starts on the inside and it moves us to a place of mourning, fasting, and prayer, 
Someone once asked Helen Keller what's worse than being blind, and she said to have sight but no vision. It's a tough thing to be able to see something that's wrong and not have a vision of what to do. And so Nehemiah starts the process of cultivating vision by going, there's something happening and hitting me in my core, and it's not okay. It's not okay. Let me ask you some vision clarifying questions for your own life. You don't have to answer these out loud because it might get messy in the room, but think about them and maybe even write them down if you need to. But here's some vision clarifying questions for your own life. What's bothering you right now? What's just bothering you right now? You're like, it's too warm in here. It's too cold in here. Not like that. I'm talking about you wake up and you're like, ah, this is bothering me right now. You go to bed and you're thinking, man, this is bothering me right now. I don't like the way this is. What's bothering you right now? We're going to engineer some vision in your life right now. What's bothering you right now? What's the thing? Can you answer that? Have you thought about that? Can you name it? Are you sitting next to it? What's bothering you right now? If I were to just ask you straight up, if you were sitting in my office and no one else was around and I said, okay, that's what's bothering you, and I were to ask you this, how would you answer this? What's the solution? What's the solution? You identified what's bothering you. What's the solution? What has to be done so that this thing that's bothering you isn't what it is right now? What's the solution? Can you answer that? Have you thought about that? Have you just enjoyed wallowing in the misery of it for so long that you haven't even thought about the solution anymore? Or is the solution something that you have a singular focus? Can you answer it quickly? Because we're crafting vision here, guys. Maybe another way to ask it is like this. What should be? It's not this way, but it should be. What should be? It's not this way, but it should be. And it agitates you on the inside. And it moves you in a way that you can only say, mm. you can quote me on that. <laughs> Let me ask you one more question. What does God seem to be doing in the situation? What does God seem to be doing in the situation? Like, I don't have a clear picture of what God is all doing, but it seems like he's doing this. It seems like this isn't the way that it should be, but it seems like God would be doing this. What does it seem like God's doing in the situation? These are just simple questions to help move us from a place of, of comfort to a place of discomfort to direct us and motivate us in terms of vision for our lives. What does God seem to be doing in the situation? Nehemiah is so bothered by what he hears. Guys, this isn't new news. He's known the walls were torn down, but people went back and he doesn't know their situation and he doesn't realize just how tough it is on them, how difficult this situation is. And he's so bothered by it, it drives him to fast and to pray. Vision often begins as a concern, a burden, a problem. Something bothers me about the way things are or about the way things are, heard, are headed. And then vision has to mature for a while. I like that he doesn't say he wept and then he went and did something. Says he wept and he mourned and he sat there for days. Can I just be honest with you? <laughs> I 
I want to say it, but it's going to sound really mean. And it, it was fine when I was just in, it was just me, but you were all here now, so I got to think about how I want to say this for just a second. <laughs> Sometimes we see things, an injustice or a person in need or a plight of some kind, and it elicits an emotional response out of us because we're human and we're compassionate, and it's awesome. Just like the Good Samaritan, he saw someone on the side of the road, and it elicited a compassionate response from him, and that's good. And that's true, but that's not necessarily vision. Vision will stand the test of time. So if you see a commercial and Sarah McLaughlin's singing and there's a dog and you know that that dog is destined for some, uh, you know, oblivion and you're moved for a moment and a single solitary tear goes down your cheek before you're like, why am I watching this commercial? And you click. That might not be vision. That might just be an emotional response to a problem, which is good. We should respond to problems. We should, we should recognize that there's needs out there and they should stir us. We should give to those causes and we should care about those things. We should invest. But you want to know the difference between vision and, and, and just a good idea, one of the steps? It might be a good idea because God's put it on your heart to give to a cause. And we take an offering and we send it away and we help a missionary or we help someone get food or we help one of those things. And we're like, yes. Vision won't let you just do that though. Vision will cause you to sign up and to serve and to build it into your life because there is a compulsion in you of what must be. And not every good idea is vision for you. And that's okay. This isn't me twisting your arm to make everything vision for you. This is just me trying to help you understand that oftentimes there are causes and they are good the church should rise up and care about those causes. We should lend our strength and our resources to those causes, but it doesn't make them vision. See the difference? Are you with me on that? If a single solitary tear, so vision matures. So sometimes people come to me and they're like, I got a vision. I want to do this thing. And I'm like, awesome. How long have you been dreaming about this? Since this morning. Okay. Okay. This might be vision. I don't know yet. Right now it's a good idea. So why don't you take some time? Why don't you get into it for a little while? Why don't you fast and pray? Why don't you see if when you wake up, the Holy Spirit's leading you and says, you gotta take a step. Or you woke up the next day and you got another vision. Come on now. And another good idea. And you're like, whoo, now this is now the good idea. And there are some people who have worn themselves out chasing down good idea after good idea. Let, let me just be honest with you. Some of you have vision. You shouldn't tell anybody that vision yet because it's not matured yet. You're not ready to share that vision. You don't have all the pieces yet. Vision takes time. It's okay that it takes time. Nehemiah shut it down to pray and to process and to fast and to hear from God. He didn't just take up an immediate like, let's take up an offering and send it back over there, which sometimes you should do. But it hits him in his core and in his heart and it knocks him off of his routine. Vision comes to this sense where it's almost like a moral sense of what must be. If vision doesn't happen that God's given to you, you'll feel like you've morally missed something, even if nobody else knows. You'll feel like you morally swung and missed by not stepping into that vision. That's the different, the compulsion when God puts vision into your heart. It's different than a sad commercial. It has to be. 
It's different than compassion, but it often starts as compassion. It's different than a problem, but it always starts with a problem. Vision needs us to see with spiritual eyes, not just our carnal eyes. It needs us to recognize that God's in it and he's doing something and he's calling us to that. Everyone's gonna end up somewhere. Are you gonna end up where God's calling you to be? It's gonna take vision. Jesus talked a lot about vision and our eyes and what we see and what we do. And the book of Luke, he tells this short parable and I won't get too into it because of time, but I wanna read it to you and just give you the short tension of it. Verse 33, Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where they'll be hidden under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those that come inside may see the light. He's like, no one just lights a lamp and then puts it underneath the bowl because that doesn't do anything for anybody. He goes, your eye, this is powerful, is the lamp of your body. So a lamp illuminates for everyone else to see what's going on. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. He's saying, whatever you're focusing your eye on will either light everybody up or it'll be dark. See to it then that the light within you isn't darkness. Verse 36, therefore, if your whole body is full of light, no part of it dark, it'll be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. What is this passage saying? There's a lot going on there. I'm out of time. I just want you to hear this. Whatever you focus on becomes your character. Whatever you're giving your life towards, whatever your vision is, becomes your character, becomes who you are. You are the, you're not just what you eat. You're what you're focused on what you're giving your time and your energy and your heart to. And he's saying, that better be light. There better be some vision in there. It better be demonstrating the goodness and the heart of God that he's put inside of you. Better be coming out because whatever you're focused on, that's your character, that's who you are. You're not just what you eat. So what are we supposed to do about all this? What's our job as a church? What's our job as individuals? For the last about two and a half years, I've been here about three years, we've been praying, we've been fasting, and we've been asking, what is the problem that God's calling us to solve, that he's calling this church to to reach into? What's the tension? What's the thing that's keeping us up at night, that's creating tension for us, that isn't just a single tear and write a check, but it's something must be done about this. And this problem has begun to surface. And I want to share this. And the next several weeks, we're going to talk about this as a church-wise as we're talking about individual mission. But the problem is simply this. Our culture embraces isolation as a value and misses the community that God's designed us to live in. The enemy wants us isolated so we're easier to pick off. It is a ruthless problem in our culture right now. I was... uh, trying to find a way to say this so that we could remember it because that's a lot of words and just giving you a simple vision statement is we just want to move people from isolation to community because we believe that's the heart of God and we live in a place that has convinced us that it is normal to move to isolation that it is normal to move to isolation I've been in meeting after meeting lunch after lunch coffee after coffee and it comes up time after time that oh here comes the winter Everyone's just going to go hibernate for the next six, seven months and stay in their houses. We're not going to be able to get anybody to do anything. And they're not going to, you know, that's just not, it's just depressing time. The sun's not going to shine. Everyone's going to shut down. And I began to challenge, you know what? It is not the weather that shuts us down. There is a spiritual thing in that. 
that the enemy wants to do to us to drive us out of relationship. And I believe with all my heart, there is a principality, a presence, a spiritual thing over the Northwest that is trying to convince the people that it is normal to escape relationship just because it gets dark at four o'clock. I'm just telling you. Just because it's raining every day. So I was out at coffee on this past week with a pastor, a very large church in town. And I started talking with him about this and he just emo- emotionally just broke. And just, I mean, we we're just like near tears talking at some coffee shop, just two dudes, it's weird. And he said, he said, we have to ask our people to start praying against this. We have to. He's like, we have to start because we're in a fight and we don't even know it. We're losing a fight and we don't even know because we don't recognize we're in a fight because you know how the enemy works. You know, God's like, you're sheep and we hate it. We're like, oh, sheep are lame. What do we do? He's like, you're gonna have to huddle up and get together because there's no power in a single sheep to do very much. You gotta herd up and get together. And the enemy's like, I'm just gonna pull you apart and sift you out here on your own and get you vulnerable, and get you weak so I can pick you off. Some of you are just like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable. You want me to be with other people all the time? And I'm like, I didn't design us. Just pointing out the design. It's how we were meant to exist. We were created for it. So where do we go from here? We're almost out of time. I want to respect time, because I know you guys' DVRs are only so big, and the game's on. (laughs) We're going to talk a lot about two relational goals in the next, uh, in the next season, the next several months, actually. Two relational goals. And this is going to be confusing for some of you, but I want you to understand. There are two relationships that are the goal for us to move people from isolation to community, right? And one, of course, is relationship with Jesus. Because that is the start of a kind of community that has internal implications like you would never believe. And we want every soul we meet to, to initiate that relationship. That's the ball game, ladies and gentlemen. That's everything. But the second one is this, relationship with his church, relationship with us. And can I be honest with you? I don't care which one happens first. I don't care which one happens first because I believe that someone who gets in relationship with God's people are gonna meet Jesus. Just saying. And I believe that people who are in a relationship with Jesus are gonna have to get around God's people. And so we are going to count it as a win every time we get into relationship with someone new. Every time we meet somebody, every time you make a friend, every time you connect, every time you open and expand your circle by a couple, by a person, by an individual, and you bring them into relationship, that's a win. And every time someone says, you know what, this thing you keep talking about, it went from kind of a good idea for me to a God idea. And I got some questions and let me take a step. Let me jump in a rooted group. Let me get my questions answered the whole thing's going to break open. It's going to be awesome. So that's where this thing is going. Two relationships are the goal. Relationship with Jesus and relationship with us, his church. If that's the vision, how are we going to frame the mission? This is the first time I'm unpackaging even this for you guys, unless you've been in my office and seen it written on the, on the wall. As we, as we begin to lean into this, and once we launch, discover all these things will happen. But this is your first chance to get this. And it's simply this, to inspire people to follow Jesus, discover new life in him, and then change our world. 
This is what we want to do as a church. This is our goal. This is a place where we come and say, man, there is hope for you. And Jesus has a plan for you. And it's going to be awesome. You can take a step. You're going to have to walk through some things. Not everything's going to be easy, but it is going to be better. And there's life in there. And inspiration is going to happen. And as you take a step towards Jesus, come on, church, you take a step towards Jesus, you're going to discover that everything you thought was true about this world was not because everyone who comes into Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And he's going to break open new places and bring new life. And then what gets really exciting is he doesn't just do that because he loves you. He does do it because he loves you, but he does it because he wants to empower you so that you can go love everyone else. And that's how we change our world. We're not gonna change the world. That's specific that we did that because changing the world is impersonal. I could write a check and believe I'm changing the world. I'm not saying, you heard me say, I'm busting on writing checks, right? I am not busting on writing checks. You should write checks, but you should give your heart for something and your life for something because we want to change our world. Maybe your world right now is just that relationship you got to deal with. Maybe that's our world. Maybe our world's what's happening in this room right now. Maybe our world is a little bit wider than that. But we're going to change our world. If we got together and we did that, I think maybe we could do something that mattered. You can stand with me. I'm going to get ready to close. But Proverbs 29:18, where there's no vision, the people perish. Where there's no vision, this church will perish. Where there's no vision, your marriage will perish. Where there's no vision, your family will perish. Where there's no vision, your career will perish. When there's no vision, the people perish. So do you have vision? Do you have vision for your family? Vision for your kids? What's your vision? Do you have vision for school? You want to know someone who's going to drop out of school? Someone that's got no vision. (laughs) You want to know someone who's going to quit their job? Someone that's got no vision. You want to know someone who wears everybody out? Someone who's got no vision. (laughs) Do you have vision? Without it, we're vulnerable. We're easily duped. We're easily cheated. We're easily destroyed. We have to have vision. I told this story before, but Donald Miller, he's an author, and he writes in his book, um, the book's changed names. It's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, I think now. Um, when I read it, it was called To Own a Dragon, <clears throat> but Christians wouldn't buy a book that was called To Own a Dragon, so he changed the name. <laughs> but he's a Christian author. And he tells a story about vision. It's a powerful story, and I'll paraphrase it because of time, but he talks about a family who has a daughter who has uh, started a relationship with, when his word's a, a loser, Uh, It's a very unhealthy relationship, a controlling young man that has brought her into a whole different world that has been very devastating for her life, and and, uh, he doesn't know what to do, and he meets with Donald, and they have a conversation. How do I reach my daughter? She's pushing us out, and she's jumped into this whole, it's a, this whole scene that's very dark and, and very rebellious and running away from all the things that she's always known was true, and he said, you know, Maybe the thing that would change your daughter's life is if you gave her a vision of how this life is better than that one. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And he goes, you got to find something for her to believe in that's bigger. So he goes home and he gets online and he starts looking for a cause because he just needs a cause, some kind of cause, something to rally his family. Their family is struggling. The marriage is struggling and the daughter's running away from the struggling marriage family that looks like it's about to split to just anyone who will accept her and this group has accepted her. And the dad calls a family meeting and he says, all right, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna build an orphanage for this group of kids and 
South America because these kids are on the street and they have nothing. It's going to take $25,000 and our family's going to do it. And everyone looks like him like he's crazy <laughs> because they're not even getting along, let alone do they have 25000 to do this. But he starts sharing this vision of these kids that are in need. Come on now, it's a single-tier commercial thing, but it comes together. And he says, what if we were the ones who reached this group and saved this fam- these kids? What if our family did that? Over the next several weeks, the family starts to come around. Eventually, the daughter's like, tell me this is what you're talking about. And she has an idea. She's looking to graphic design, and she says, what if I made a shirt and we sold shirts? And the wife, who was like, you're crazy. We're talking about splitting the assets, and you want to raise another $25,000 and give it away, says, okay, let's give this a shot. And pretty soon, they start casting a vision of how their family is going to make an impact in the lives of these children. And sooner than, rather than later, she dumps that guy because she's now the hero of a new story and she doesn't have time to hang out with this other scene and, and they're rallying and they raise this money and they build an orphan and then they build another one. And it just expands and it grows. Why? Because that's the power of vision. It unites us to accomplish something that is greater than ourselves. And my prayer for you in this next season is that God would begin to give you vision praying for marriages and families that need vision. I'm praying for this church and those of you who have been on this journey the last couple of years and some of you are jumping in right now and this is a great time to jump in and you're beginning to see, wow, God's given us vision. Some of you are like, it's taken so long. Vision has to mature. So we've been going on that journey. We've been praying, we've been fasting. Some of you have been there with us doing that. It's amazing and it's important. And this is what happens next. How exciting is it to be on this journey with Jesus? So God, I thank you. Thanks for vision. Thanks for designing us to need it even when we're frustrated and we don't have it. I pray for the families in this room that (laughs) they just need vision right now. I pray you'd begin to put into their heart. God, help them to clarify the problem and what you see in the problem and how to partner with it. I pray they wouldn't look to escape and mechanisms of escaping in order to not deal with the vision God, give them fresh vision in their family. I pray for careers that need vision right now. I pray for financial situations that need vision right now. And I pray for this body, the church, what you're doing in this neighborhood for vision. I pray we'd begin to pull people out of isolation and into community. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke this tolerant, acceptant vibe that somehow isolation is acceptable. You just didn't design us for that. You looked down at the garden and you said it wasn't good for us to be alone and it isn't good today. We need you. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen, church. We're gonna dive into flushing this out next week. Hope you can make it. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord.